Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And we are in the midst of a series we've been doing this whole season of Lent, um, looking at the cross and what happens at the cross, asking the why did Jesus die or what do we think was accomplished at it. So if you want to get fancy about it, atonement theories. And we've spent some time talking about some of the more academic, uh, metaphorical ways of picturing the cross, whether it's that Jesus uh, is like paying a debt or uh, taking our punishment or wins some sort of causing battle against evil or gives us a really good moral example of how to be good boys and girls. Uh, but we're now going to spend some time delving into some more biblical texts uh, more mm-hmm. in depth. So, Erica, where are we headed today? So today we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, where Paul, or whoever Paul is quoting here, um, kind of melds together a lot of those theories. And so so we're all on the same page. I'm going to read uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Paul writes, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Amen. Good job. Way to go, Paul. Can I ask, you mentioned a minute ago um, that Paul may be quoting somebody here. Yes. And while uh, our English Bibles uh, may uh, or may not put quote marks around things, the original uh, Greek manuscripts, they had not invented quote marks. What what gives us the impression of the possibility that this may be something that Paul's quoting somebody? Well, part of it is it kind of riffs off of something from Isaiah. Okay. But also... um, just scholarly, at least what I have read and I have heard, that this might have been an early hymn of the church. Okay, okay. Um, just an early uh, way for them to kind of, before that we had the creeds and everything, yeah. for, the, for a way for them to describe who Jesus was and is. Yeah, yeah. And I've always liked that it was a hymn theory mm-hmm. because it reads like poetry. Yeah. yeah. And Paul. Paul's not a poet. I, I love Paul, <laughs> but Paul is no poet. No. So this doesn't read like Paul because it's too pretty. Well, and, and so that's that's an important piece here. That um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, sometimes in our English translations, the the people who, who devise these English translations will even like frame it or write it like it's poetry with broken mm-hmm. lines or things. And you're right that that Paul, who we make fun of from time to time for having these long, long, complicated sentences with lots of dependent clauses that are even more unwieldy in the original Greek. And you can get away with it in Greek in ways that English won't bear. But yeah, this doesn't read like that. There's mm-hmm. there's poetry, there's um, there's uh, sort of poetic repetition uh, that is sort of the way Hebrew poetry or, or uh, other forms of ancient poetry worked. Um, so even though nobody's found any copy of a musical notation of what the melody would have been, it sure has the feel of poetry or a hymn or something that the mm-hmm. early church might have sung. So I mean, like, think about just how early that makes this. That even if this is Paul the Apostle writing this, this is just you know 30-odd years after the cross and resurrection. If he's quoting something, that means that this is something that's widely enough known that everybody there in Philippi is nodding their head going, I love that song! Yeah, I love it when he quotes that at us. That We're talking early, early, early mm-hmm. notions. So... Um, 
while sometimes you'll get into conversations about how some ideas seem like, oh, this is much too late an idea to have developed, or this is a later idea of Christian theology, whatever we have in, in Philippians 2 is early, early Christian thinking, reflection on what the cross means. So even though it doesn't get as fleshed out maybe as, you know, the like you said, the, the creeds 300 years later will be very precise and, you know, fight mm-hmm. over the exact wording. Um, there's still a lot of, of substance here, and this is early, early stuff. Whether it's Paul or somebody yet predating Paul that he's quoting approvingly, um, that's early stuff. So, Erica, you had also previously mentioned that this harkens back to a place in Isaiah. Yes. It's Isaiah... Um... 45, and um, we're picking up kind of in the middle of verse 21, where it says, there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no one beside me. Uh, And then starting in verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Uh, By myself I have sworn from my mouth, um, has, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall shall swear. And so we get that same language towards the end of Philippians mm-hmm. 2 here, where it talks about, you know, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It, it, I always appreciate those places in the Bible where um, people make those connections of Jesus <clears throat> being God. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that in certain parts of the New Testament, that's not always super clear. Sometimes the author is kind of separating God and Jesus as two separate people. And then sometimes it's way more clear, like the first chapter of John, mm-hmm. where it's like super, <laughs> super crystal clear. And so I always like it when they, when authors in the New Testament go, nope, Jesus was Lord, just like God is Lord, because they're the same. And I think this is one of those places that does it, because mm-hmm. um, the Old Testament would have been very familiar to a lot of these early Christians who were first Jews. So they would have been familiar with Isaiah 45 and would have been all like, hey, this sounds familiar. Where have I heard this before? Oh, Isaiah. Yeah. And and that in a way that sometimes we don't get as clearly in English, but would have been certainly clear to Paul's uh, readers and hearers, anytime you hear the word Lord used to describe Jesus, there's sort of echoes, because that word, the, the Greek word kurios, mm-hmm. is the same translation for anytime you get the God's name, the, you know, the official name, Yahweh, the, mm-hmm. the I am who I am name for God. When it gets translated into the Greek Hebrew, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, we call the Septuagint, it's always kurios, Lord there. So anytime anybody in the Bible calls Jesus Lord, it's sort of this winking like, Jesus, you know, Lord. But it's even clearer here in Philippians 2 where that language of to Jesus every knee will bow, every Mm -hmm. tongue confess. When in Isaiah, God says, me alone, and makes like hammers at home. Nobody else, nobody else. I don't give it to anybody else. Mm -hmm. To me, every tongue will confess, every uh, every knee will bow. And then for Paul to make the move, whether, again, it's his uh, original thought or he's quoting somebody saying, to Jesus every knee will bow and tongue confess, that's a pretty tight, close identification of Jesus with the Yahweh of, of uh, Israel's Old Testament life as well. Which would have been a struggle for those early Jews because it's, you know, the Lord your God is one. Right, right, right. Yeah, there is only one God. So how can we say that Jesus is God and, and God is, you know, Yahweh yeah. is God? Mm. But it, it, again, it's very 
clearly pointing out here, no, these two are the same person. And you can kind of get the sense, I mean, not to get ourselves way off on track into a conversation about the Trinity instead of a atonement conversation, but, like, why it took the early church long enough to try and figure this out. Because, yeah, the number one rule of Second Temple Judaism is there's only one God, don't worship anything else. That God is sent into exile before. Mm -hmm. And yet the early church, convinced by being in the presence of Jesus, and then those who had heard the stories were like, and yet it's still appropriate for us to worship this Jesus and say there's only one God because mm -hmm. this God must somehow be fully present and embodied <clears throat> in this Jesus of Nazareth. It took 300 years before they would write it down in words that were super precise, like God from God, light from light, true God from true God. But that that notion is here in mm -hmm. an early, early, early fragment from um, Philippians 2. So since we've been talking about atonement theories and we said that you know this kind of... Um, mixes some. What are some of the atonement theories that we kind of see within this passage? Yeah. So I definitely see um, moral influence. Uh -huh. That um, here is Jesus who has emptied himself. He's taken the form of a slave. He's, um, you know, and when he was found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And so to me, that. It doesn't straight out say you should therefore also be humbling mm -hmm. yourself and being obedient and um, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't straight out say that, but I think that it's heavenly implied. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you go a couple of verses earlier before what uh, Erica read in what's, what is clearly Paul, Paul uses this passage mm -hmm. to explicitly say... I want you to put the interests of others in front of yourself. Yeah. And so he goes out and says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. And then let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That the way Paul uses it, again, <clears throat> would suggest that this is an existing hymn that he says, here's why I'm quoting this. I want you to have that picture in mind mm -hmm. as you live out your lives. True. So Paul is saying it. Yeah. Paul is making that connection. The hymn that he may or may not be may quoting. Not be. Does not. Right. Um, but Paul's definitely making yeah. that point. And so to me, there's definitely some moral influence here. And maybe that's an, an interesting thought to think about the way this hymn might have existed before it gets brought into Philippians. Mm -hmm. That the early church might have just had this sort of a, we sing these things about Jesus. Jesus, you know, emptied himself and died on the cross. like, And, mm -hmm. and it was at that point. And that may have had a whole host of meanings or uses for the early church. And then Paul in this moment says, and while I'm on the subject of... Uh, putting others before yourself, let's all quote that hymn that we all love, and mm -hmm. it gets used that way, which suggests that this the, the hymn fragment itself um, has a lot of richness to it. If you just read it in the setting of chapter 2, you might only hear that moral influence side, but that, that's definitely a piece of it. And that, there's kind of a double-edged sword to this idea of putting others first, uh, in the sense of um, Paul seems to think this is pretty broad, good advice, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, we're supposed to put the interests of others before ourselves, but there's ways that that can be used, uh, maybe in ways that, that get weaponized against particular people, or sort of a, you all over here, need, you need to be quiet, while meanwhile over here, other, we, we don't have to listen to that passage. That, 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 that's a challenge in the, the history of how this passage is it gets used sometimes. Right. This and this passage, as well as others, uh, have been used historically by the church um, and sometimes just sections of the church, um, certain denominations, um, to kind of put certain groups, for example, women, mm -hmm. kind of in a more sub submissive role mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that the point that is emphasized to the woman is, you know, empty yourself, humble yourself, be obedient. And um, while 
for the menfolk that they are serving often are hearing the second half of this <laughs> hymn, which is, oh, when you humble yourself, and you're humble because you're a guy, um, you're going to be exalted mm-hmm. and you're going to be taken care of because uh, this, this woman over here is going to take care of you here. So, <laughs> so this... And I think that as we had talked about sloppy Victor, um, Christus Victor previously, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that would be an example of sloppy moral influence because not everybody is being encouraged Mm -hmm. to be on the same level playing field. It's definitely um, used against groups of people um, for the benefit of other groups of people. And maybe important to notice that at least as Paul frames this here in Philippians 2, he doesn't, he doesn't give a, uh, any suggestion that he intends this to be unevenly applied to people, but sees like, mm-hmm. as a community, as everybody he's writing to, everybody, look out for each other, and and maybe this is Paul dealing with the impulse that seems like it was there in the first century. It's certainly or it's still around the 21st century, that sort of, a, you have to look out for me and my group first. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. me first, and everybody out, I and mean, that, that sort of like, you know, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way kind of mentality, and that Paul sort of, no, the, the Christian community is meant to be the opposite of that, and grounded in who Jesus is. But he, he while while the, the text or the passage could be misused in ways like, you over here, you listen to these verses, you over here, listen to these other verses, Paul doesn't here divide up uh, his audience the way, like in other passages, there will be places where he goes, here's advice for men, here's advice for women, and we've got to wrestle with what's going on there, and how we hear messages given to other people. But here in Philippians 2, this is sort of meant to be a, as a, as a broad rule, as a broad sort of way mm-hmm. of life, uh, we're supposed to be patterned on the way Jesus put the interests of others before himself. And to trust that if we're doing that in community, that as much as I'm supposed to lay down my life for other people, others are commanded to put their put my interests before their own. Mm-hmm. But if we do this together, nobody gets permanently stepped on. And maybe that's the, the, the ideal Paul has in mind. He's not picturing a vision of... Some people will be forever stepped on because they're the doormats, and other people are the ones who will be permanently enjoying uh, being lifted up by others. But we sort of take turns doing this for one another in different mm. ways. And I think that's an example of how it would not be sloppy. That okay, that's yeah. good moral influence. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Um, it's just it has been used sloppily in sure, the past. Sure, sure, sure. Well, you know, it, it's interesting to me, uh, while, while he doesn't directly reference the Jesus' act of foot washing here, there's a piece that seems very similar to me, um, and uh, there's that scene uh, the night that Jesus is uh, arrested and betrayed that he washes the disciples' mm-hmm. feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, there it's sort of a one-directional thing, and Jesus does it for all his disciples. But at the end, his command to his disciples is, now you do this for each other, and that there's supposed to be this sort of, in both directions, it's a humbling thing to wash somebody else's smelly feet, but it's also a humbling thing to let somebody do that for mm-hmm. you, which is something that we're perfectly capable of doing for ourselves generally. Like, and again, we don't even have the same need for washing feet in an era with paved roads and not as many horses and buggies on the road <laughs> in some areas. Um, <laughs> but but the, the idea is that it's humbling in both directions. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult thing to serve someone, but it also can be a humbling thing to let somebody do for you, and that Jesus dares us to put ourselves in both of those roles back and forth so that nobody is forever mm-hmm. the, I'm on top, I know because you're serving me, or also sort of that martyr, like, I'm always taking care of everybody, and like we're always supposed to be uh, shifting both, both in caring and t- mm-hmm. being taken care of. 
Now, in particular, as, as a way of talking about what happens at the cross, this is one of those passages, and there's not a huge number of them, where Paul talks about what the cross itself is all about. And what, is, what, is, what do you see him saying about what, what the cross is all about? Why it matters that Jesus didn't just die of old age uh, in a retirement home in Florida, but that Jesus dies this particularly ugly death on a cross? For me, I see it as sacrifice. Because okay. if, if Jesus would have just died of an old age, anyone can do that. Okay. You know, everyone pretty much does that. We, you know, we just kind of die of old age or disease or something. But here, Jesus is willing to give himself over and sacrifice himself at what in today's world we consider a very young age. I mean, mm-hmm. he was younger than I am mm-hmm. when he does this, and it, it reminds me a lot. And I know we're going to get more into this in our in the next episode uh, next week, but. Uh, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and you know, you didn't bring your old, your old you or, or your old ram that's ready to die and just lay him on the altar and say, "Okay, well, yep, here you go, the, God." <laughs> put them on the altar just in time for them to die of old age. Then, then count it as a sacrifice, right? Yep. Uh-huh. No, you're supposed to bring you know the the year year old lamb, mm-hmm. you know the, the the young lamb, the lamb that has a full life ahead of it, the lamb that's going to give you uh, wool and mm-hmm. food and, and nourishment. Um, that's sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so for Jesus to die the way he did, he, he's willing to sacrifice himself rather than just saying, no, I'm going to wait until I'm old and just... Yeah. There, there's a difference there. Sure. So so as, as you're uh, hearing these words of uh, Paul's about that Jesus humbles himself, becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross, that it's significant that he dies uh, in this sort of willing uh, laying down mm-hmm. his life and that there's a sense of it being cut off early that this isn't Jesus dying of old age in that regard um, because this is Jesus doing what Paul has just said about putting the needs of others before himself that Jesus puts our collective need in mm-hmm. humanity and says I'll give up my life to save them or something like yeah. that and I can't remember which gospel it is but even Jesus himself says that to Pilate you know it's not you that are that are putting me to death. I'm laying down right, my own right, life. Right, yeah. You know, I'm choosing this. I'm allowing you to do this to me. Right. You're not the one causing this. That is, it's especially seems to be clear in John's gospel that, that mm-hmm. like Jesus is the one calling the shots and Pilate's running <clears> back and forth like a scared dog. Um, and that there's, that there's definitely that sense in John's gospel of Jesus is at no point out of control. And we'll say things in John's gospel like, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down and I'm going to pick mm-hmm. it back up of my own accord. Like there's that sense of Jesus being not helpless victim mm-hmm. in the sense of, oh, if he, if he had the chance to get away from this cross thing, he would have, but he, he chooses this. Because again, in John's gospel, Jesus says, this is what, no, there's no greater love than to lay down your life mm-hmm. for one's friend, so that this is Jesus putting his money where his mouth is, so to speak. What's interesting to me is that, that whole way of talking about, okay, the cross is Jesus offering sacrifice, um, but it, it, you don't get the sense exactly here that uh, this is about like, uh, taking a punishment that was somebody mm-hmm. else's or paying a debt that was somebody else's. I mean, yeah. we, we talked before about we are so immersed in that kind of language that it's we often assume, well, that's exactly what he's talking about here. But Paul, or the hymn fragment, doesn't use that. He just sort of says, you know, he offered his life to save us. Like, mm-hmm. the lifeguard might offer his life to and, and drown trying to save somebody else who's uh, in need in the water. And there's it's not exactly about paying a debt. It's more like... Somehow there was a need, and Jesus said, I will offer myself instead mm-hmm. of. But um, there isn't directly talk about that God demanded that somebody die. Or it's yeah. Jesus offers. 
which which makes this like not quite this doesn't fit quite in the box of penal substitution. Mm-hmm. It it's more than the moral influence thing, and it doesn't exactly feel like cosmic battle like the Christus Victor. There's certainly that sense by the end of God exalting Jesus and giving him the name that is above yeah. every name. But like there's no image of like and Jesus fights the battle or you know mm. def- it's it's like somehow. In death, there it is. That whatever whatever needs to get accomplished is accomplished, mm-hmm. and now he's exalted as a result of all that. Um, can I ask? Do you think it makes a difference? Um, not just that Jesus dies early, but that there's a sense of something more that happens at, at, at the cross, at a Roman execution stake than, I mean, again, it, it, you said before, it's, it's important Jesus doesn't just die of old age, because mm-hmm. there's something chosen about that, but, like, could Jesus have, like, uh, died nobly and valiantly as a hero, firefighter, or something like that? Is there something important about this idea of, of this, this, the ugliness of a cross that, that's important to this passage? There was certainly something shameful about crucifixion Mm -hmm. um because oftentimes the person who's being crucified was completely naked Mm -hmm. a lot of our um artwork has a nice loincloth around jesus to kind of help with that but Mm -hmm. in actuality he was probably naked and so to be put up on a tree or a cross or an x in some way being nailed up onto something where you can't move you're completely naked um, and you're slowly suffocating mm-hmm, to death mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that's often how folks actually died was they were suffocating um, by the weight of their own body pulling it down their lungs or yeah. something. But it was a very shameful death. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I, I know I've been part of discussions in like seminary about, well, is this the absolute worst way to die? Or, right. or like... It, like, does this somehow mean that other ways of, you know, shameful, horrific deaths are, like, somehow not as bad because <laughs> right. they're not the way Jesus died? Right. Or, you know, so, you know, yes, it was a very shameful death, but could Jesus have died in a slightly less shameful way and have it still count? I don't know. Right. Well, and, and maybe maybe that is, is us importing questions that the, the biblical text isn't interested mm-hmm. in answering. Yeah. But I think you raise a good point that it seems to me like that um, somehow what it means for Jesus to empty himself, to borrow that language here from, from Philippians 2, is that there's not even the, well, at least I get to die a hero sort of a thing. That, like, no, as Jesus mm-hmm. is dying, everybody thinks this is disgusting. I mean, like, the, the Romans think he's a, an enemy mm-hmm. of the state. We have to kill him. And the, as the Romans watch the death of Jesus, they're thinking, look, this proves not only that we're more powerful, but that we're right because we aren't this ugly, disgusting, troublemaking, you know, uh, yeah. peasant we have to kill. And the religious leaders all look at Jesus dying. You're like, yeah, he's disgusting. He claimed to be God. You're like, all, you know, mm-hmm. say that this is a, a terrible, horrible person here. That part of what Jesus takes on is that like willingness to absorb all the, the the shame of this moment too. Yeah, it's so shameful that even somebody else being crucified next to him is making fun of Jesus right. while he's dying. Right. Because it's like, hey, you think you're so great? You're up here with me too. Look, yeah. we're both right. we're both right. up here. Right. And we may spend some more time in greater depth and further conversation on this, but the the other strands of the New Testament will point out that it's 
particularly shameful in a, a Jewish context to get strung up on a tree. There's a line from Deuteronomy mm-hmm. about anybody who gets hung on a tree is cursed. Uh, and Paul in Galatians will make a big deal out about that and be like, yeah, that's part of what happens at the cross, that Jesus doesn't just get to die a heroic death and then they're going to make statues of him, but like everybody's cursing him. He absorbs all the shame mm-hmm. of that as well. And that he knows that's a piece of this, that it's not like, well, I'll just go on my little hill somewhere else and nobody see me die and I'll you just remember me as a hero. But that Jesus mm-hmm. knows he's going to die with everybody hating him, with him being the villain, um, and that that's a piece of what happens there. Um, that sometimes, uh, uh, I think in particular of, a, of an idea of um, Martin Luther's, where he will talk about what happens at the cross as sort of a great exchange, that sort of Jesus sort of offers up all of his goodness and takes all of our, for lack of a better term, garbage. Um, uh, that includes, you know, sin and shame and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And that that's, that's more the way Luther will talk about what happens at the cross is that um, it, it, it's less the language of God demands payment because God's the one who's offering the payment too at the same time. That, that seems like it's a little cook in the books if it's really important to God that the payment be made and God makes the payment. But this exchange of we bring this need and all this sort of shame and disgustingness mm-hmm. and God trades that or Jesus takes that or offers it. Um, but some of that seems to be maybe going on here with that idea of Jesus being empty too. Mm-hmm. And he's seen as a criminal. I mean, mm-hmm. he's crucified between two criminals. This is a criminal's death this is a criminal's death penalty and so that adds another level of you know again he's not the hero right he's a criminal not only in the eyes of the romans but also in the eyes of the jews right 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 this is one of those places i'm just going to own my full-on nerdiness here where um uh the batman movie mythology has been very helpful for me as like a way of making sense of what happens in here and uh there's there's a, uh, a recurring theme in one of the christopher nolan batman movies where um it's all about how Batman isn't a hero or he's willing to not, not be perceived as a hero because, you know, everybody, the police are after him and the public is against him and all that. And there's this conversation between the Batman character and other characters about, like, that he, he knows that, uh, that he has to do things that people are not going to think are heroic and that exactly because he cares about people and he cares about the city, he's willing mm-hmm. to do those kinds of things. And that's an important piece of... Um, in a way, like what happens at the cross, that it's not that Jesus says um, it's gonna it's gonna be painful, but at least I get to be here out of this. But Jesus yeah. knows, like part of the choice is I'm I'm willing to absorb all the hatred of everybody too. I'm willing to absorb all the shame and the mockery and the spitting and all that kind of thing. That Jesus knows that and is willing to absorb that for our sake, um, for the sake of other. When he could have avoided that. Mm-hmm. It reminds me just a little bit of, um, you know the story of Casper uh, Ten Boom in the Ten Boom family from um, The Hiding Place? Do you know that historical event? A little bit. So they're a Dutch family, I think, and mm-hmm. they um, uh, they hide Jews in their family in their house in a place mm-hmm. called The Hiding Place, which is where the story comes from. Um, and sh- there's a real family, real historical event. Corey Ten Boom actually and her sister both died in the concentration camp. Well, uh, both went to concentration camp. Her sister died there. She ends up living and writing and all kinds mm-hmm. of things. Well, her, their dad, uh, they, these are all... Dutch Reformed Christians, um, and when the Nazi occupiers insist that all the um, Jewish people in their community have to wear those yellow stars of David so that they become legally okay to persecute, Mm -hmm. Casper Tenboom, a Dutch Reformed Christian, starts wearing one himself knowing that he may get all the you know, mm. same, you know, whatever. And uh, there's a scene in the in the movie, which is drawn from the novel, which is drawn from real life, uh, where they ask him, you know, why are you doing this? You're, you're a Christian. And he goes, if we all wear them, they can't, they can't hurt any of us. Mm. Um, but it's this willful choice of, like, um, 
if I if I wear this sign, which isn't which isn't mine by a logic, I'm not Jewish, yeah. I'm not you know, but it's, and it's not my faith. But by doing that, uh, if if I absorb some of that garbage into me, I'm willing to cast. It's sort of a solidarity thing. I will mm-hmm. stand in solidarity with the people who are getting uh, persecuted or hurt or something. And that in a sense, there seems to be this idea from Paul of that. Like in this extreme way, that's what the cross is about. Jesus, not just sort of like dying a hero's death somewhere so we can make statues to him, mm-hmm. but Jesus taking on the whatever garbage is meant to be aimed at us as human beings. Jesus says, "I'll take that. I'll I cast my lot with them, so to speak." So that in a sense, it's not just the moment of Jesus' death, but in a sense, all of Jesus' life that is atoning. You know, that it's, it's Jesus being with us as one of us mm-hmm. in from from manger to borrowed tomb. Um, which, I, at least to me, seems like an important move to make. Because sometimes you'll hear folks say things like, um, Jesus could have just beamed down from heaven as an adult and died right away, and that would have been... Like, the, the gospel seemed to assume, though there's an intention and a purpose to all of Jesus' life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that it's not just he could have beamed down from heaven a 30-year-old man, gotten killed, and then end of story. Um, but that all of Jesus' life is about laying his life down. All of it is about the, whatever atoning is, and all of it has to do with being present with us and sharing what it is to be human and absorbing the garbage that is uh, part of the messiness mm-hmm. of human life. Other things that we think we need to highlight or lift up from this passage? I think we covered most of it. Yep. Can I ask any final thoughts then on the, the imagery that Paul uses in what we call verse 7 about Jesus emptying himself? What, what, do, what do you think that, that idea is about Jesus emptying himself before we get to the talk about the, the death on a cross? I always kind of assume that that part is about Jesus's divinity, right? That Jesus Mm -hmm. is part of the Trinity Mm -hmm. and to come down and to take a human form, you have to be able to give up parts of that. Like, I'm not, I'm not really, (laughs) right. I, I don't really know how this would all work, but that. By taking, becoming 100% human and being 100% divine, um, you know, there's, there's that tension and that balance, um, but that somehow that divinity has to be able to take a little bit of a backseat because in order to be human, Jesus had to have been able to feel cold and hungry mm-hmm. and the full range of human emotion, which I think we could easily debate whether or not God feels those sure. human emotions. Sure. And so emptying himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness, I think that emptying is somehow connected with that tension of being both God and human. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I have very good language for yeah. what that means, but yeah. that's what I always assume that it has something to do with. He he limits his divinity when he becomes human. Like he yes. purposefully limits. And as you're talking, I'm trying to think of a good word for that, and limits the best I can come up with. Because mm-hmm. yeah, obviously, like the omnipresence of God is limited when you put right. God in and, human and, form, and, and that there's Jesus who can only be in one place at, at one, one time. time. Right. You know, right. Right. But there's other parts, other aspects of his divinity that he he chooses to limit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that he can experience what we experience. It reminds me, too, of that scene when um, uh, Jesus is in front of uh, Pilate and the authorities in Matthew's gospel, where, uh, or no, it's, it's in the garden, and he says to his followers, when they're about to draw their swords and start killing off mm-hmm. the, the mob and come to arrest him, and Jesus says, do you not think I could call 12 legions of angels to come mm-hmm. defend me? And Jesus, I mean, his point doesn't seem to be, man, if only we had an angel army, we could stop these guys. Jesus goes, no, 
I have that authority, I have that power, and I'm choosing not to do it. That's not God's way here. My way is to lay down my life and to offer it up in suffering love. Um, and if, that if something like that's what's mm-hmm. going on, that yeah, this is availability. of Jesus, at every point, could have taken an easier or a different path and constantly chooses, no, that's not what I've come for. Well, he does that with the temptation in the desert, too. Sure, when sure. Satan, you know, tempts him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, and right. he's and quoting the Psalms and saying, won't the angels catch you and keep you from dashing your foot against the right. stone? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to, you know. Right. He could have done that. Right. And the and, angels would have caught him and would have saved him, but he's not going to. And interestingly, yeah, Jesus doesn't say, I never thought about calling an angel help or something, but it's like, yeah, I have access to angels and I'm choosing not to do that. Mm-hmm. Because, the, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that seems to be an important idea there. That's always one of those places where I wish we saw more of Jesus's adolescence yeah. in the Bible. Um, because I can imagine that he probably did call an angel to help him at one point, but it was probably when he was, like, nine, and, like, still, like, you know, humans at age nine, like, let's be honest, they don't have quite the full reasoning right. skills and, and that any, adults do. Any perks you have at your disposal at age nine, you call on. I mean, it, exactly. Yeah. So I imagine, like, nine-year-old Jesus calling upon an angel so that he wouldn't have to eat the broccoli at dinner. But talking, you know, talking about his child childhood and you know even in the womb you know how much he limited himself sure in mm-hmm. mary's womb to, to you know that that still blows my mind to think about that and think okay the god of the universe went down to two cells right what and, and, <laughs> and grew from that and like in, in all and all that you know it, to me, it, it, like it's a, it's a reminder when you think about the neediness of a of a baby, you know, like oh my goodness, how needy that is. But like in a sense, like from where God's perspective is, like even grown up adult is pretty needy. You know, there's like a, we keep needing oxygen and food and uh-huh. like limits in temperature and all that. And, like that that seems to be a part of what's going on here. That God becomes vulnerable in that mm-hmm. way. And there's a piece of me that thinks like just letting that idea sit is is powerful because we tend to not like that kind of language where God, no, God's all powerful, God's super strong, God's like Superman, mm-hmm. he's bulletproof, and that instead there's this like, God's greatest, most powerful act of salvation or redemption it isn't in uh, overt power, but in vulnerability. Like, mm-hmm. that's pretty radical, and that overturns you know the the way the Greeks and the Romans would have, you know no our God you know our gods are in charge because they control the lightning bolts and here's Paul saying like God at God's most divine and most powerful is in surrender like every layer of surrender becoming you know, the the vulnerability mm-hmm. of being a baby becoming the vulnerability of somebody stripped naked and put up on a cross like mm-hmm. that's God's power that's radical yeah and I think often when we come to this passage. We look at Christ emptying himself at the cross, mm-hmm. but we forget about, you know, the 33 years leading sure. up to that in which he has continuously, from the moment that, you know, he's conceived in, in Mary's womb through that time, he has been emptying himself and God has consistently been raising him up because he's been willing to take that journey down. And maybe that's an important way of helping understand why Paul, this is Paul uses, he frames this in the sense of let Jesus be your example um, because he clearly doesn't mean we all have to go die on crosses. I mean, like he doesn't use the passage saying, now we should all become a suicide mm-hmm. cult. No, the, the early church made a real clear, like only Jesus gets to die on the cross of the sins of the world. And yet, there's something about the way that Jesus lays his life down and puts the needs of others before himself 
that becomes mm-hmm. like the, the touchstone for Christian community. And maybe part of what it is is that there's no point at which we get to put up a boundary and say, okay, but Jesus, I don't have to do this, or I don't, I don't, have, to, I, I don't have to love those people, or I don't have to go mm-hmm. that far. And Paul keeps going like, eh, what, did, what were the boundaries for Jesus? Nope, all the way to laying down his life, losing his reputation, losing mm-hmm. everything. That there's no place at which I go, but love doesn't have to include that, right? Like we don't, there's no there's no that meatloaf song. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> um, that like that there is no there is no asterisk or fine print there. We both in what God would do in the ways mm-hmm. we're called to put one another um, uh, before our own needs. All right. Well, um, we, we've we've dug into this passage. We'll dig into some more pieces in our next episode as we continue this Lenten journey. Thanks everybody for listening. See you guys. Bye. Oh,